The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Dana Perkins and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. It is a year of elections around the world, and if you look at all the countries with upcoming elections together, they account for 67% of global GDP. In addition to the longer-term implications for climate-friendly policy depending upon who is or isn't elected, geopolitical uncertainty could lead to a slowing of investment in the energy transition this year, while investors await results and ultimately stability. Good climate policy can boost low-carbon energy rollout and help nations reach their net-zero targets. But without it, necessary emissions reductions by 2050 are even less certain. Today, I'm joined by BNEF's head of global policy, Victoria Cumming, and U.S. policy analyst, Derek Flackel. They discuss the potential implications for the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, and should the likely Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump return to the Oval Office, will he be interested and able to repeal the IRA? In addition to the United States, we preview upcoming elections in Canada and Mexico, and in Europe, with growing right-leaning sentiment, will this be reflected in European Parliament? And in the United Kingdom, what will happen between the Conservatives and Labour when it comes to climate? In Asia, is it possible that political stability in India, Indonesia, or South Korea could lead to more favorable climate policy? And could this be the year that the ANC loses power in South Africa after several decades? We also chat about whether anyone can really trust the polling data. To access BNEF's research note highlighted on today's show titled Wave of Elections Poses Risk for the Energy Transition, BNEF subscribers are going to be able to find it at bnf.com or at BNF Go on the Bloomberg Terminal. But right now, let's speak with Vicky and Derek about the global elections in 2024 and what this could mean for the energy transition. Vicky, thank you for joining today. Thank you very much for having me. And Derek, thank you for joining us today as well. Thank you very much for having me. So we're here to talk about what is going to be a very exciting and very important election year in the climate space with a number of elections coming up in 2024. And we'll get into the individual countries in this show. And and I hope both of you will be able to provide some real perspective on those. But before we dive into that, can you give us a bit of context about why this year in particular is so important from a climate standpoint when it comes to elections? So it's kind of unprecedented, the number of elections that we have this year at all levels of government and all around the world. So I think economies um, responsible for around two thirds of global GDP and half of the world's population actually have elections this year. And these elections have both short-term ramifications in terms of markets and policymaking, but they also have significant ramifications in the longer term, depending on the outcome of those elections. And we're kind of we're at a particularly crucial stage in terms of the energy transition because governments are trying to put in place those concrete policies that actually enable them to achieve their 2030 climate plans, but also get them really on the road to achieving net zero by the middle of the century. 
One way to get a feel for what could happen in a number of these countries has typically been to turn to polls. But can we really trust polls and what are polls able to tell us? So I think opinion polls definitely can provide some information like a snapshot at that time of the potential outcome of the elections. But it really is a snapshot of the particular moment when the poll is taken. And it really depends on the underlying methodology of the polls as to how accurate they're going to be. Because we have seen in recent votes and elections, like in the UK and the US, when we had the Brexit votes, that the polls were somewhat misleading. They were unaligned with what actually happened. And that can be for various reasons, including the sample that they've used for the poll is unrepresentative, or it's made up of people that have particularly strong political views. They don't necessarily reflect when you actually, the participants in the polls themselves may not be wholly truthful, whether intentionally or unintentionally. So in the UK, we have had this uh, trend of what are called shy Tories. Tories are what referred to as the, the Conservative Party. So where respondents to polls actually don't want to admit that they vote for the Conservative Party. Or more recently, we have this phenomenon of shy switches. So these are ones where they state um, in public that they support the Conservative Party, but they don't actually intend to vote for it. So really, they can provide useful information as part of overall assessment, but they should be taken with a pinch of salt. So if we can't really predict what's going to happen, the polls are really not telling us what we need them to because people aren't even being honest in those polls. That raises the question regarding those who are thinking about investing in these markets and in some of the companies in these markets. What does that really mean for investors? And are they able to make bets based on how they're predicting the future? Or do they really just back away? So I think um, we can talk really now about like the short term implications of having all these elections. So really the kind of catchphrase is uncertainty. So in terms of investment and markets, there's elevated risk and that can weigh down investor sentiment, especially from foreign investors. And the energy sectors, particularly new energy, are particularly exposed to these elevated risks because in large part, the technology deployment, for example, depends on policy and political support. So there is evidence to suggest that some of the kind of stock markets might be more muted in the run-up to elections. Investment in energy transition technologies and processes could be reduced and companies may be less willing to or might want to press hold on making final investment decisions for large projects, especially where they depend on policy support. So we can see things like short-term fluctuations in markets due to uh, big announcements like the opinion polls, uh, like interim votes where we see debates between the contenders for the elections and also when the parties release their manifestos. And in terms of kind of the, the policy risks, It differs across markets depending on what the overall electoral process is. But in general, there is, as I've said, a lot of political uncertainty. So we could see that the incumbent government tries to kind of rush through a whole load of policy and legislation in the run up to the election. And this can see, especially in cases where there's like a change in political administration is expected, this can see a rush of companies trying to take advantage of policies and incentives that could well be changed 
when the new government comes in place. Then we expect to see a real slowdown in the policymaking process. This can be official periods of quiet time for policymakers, like in the EU and the UK, where the current government can't make big announcements of policies, or indeed the whole legislature shuts down. So this kind of likely to see, especially in the second half of the year, a real slowdown in policymaking, which is really tricky because, as I mentioned earlier, we don't have that long till governments need to meet their 2030 climate plans and they really need to put in place these policies, especially in slow to take action sectors like, say, industry. So this year, not only are we really expecting to see a lot less activity in some of these markets, we're also expecting to see a lot less activity in terms of the policy that's coming through. And that is certainly seen in the United States. You know, Derek, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what this year is likely to hold in the U.S. in the run up to the election. So. In the United States, it's looking like another very competitive election this year. At the presidential level, we're likely to see a rematch between former President Donald Trump, Republican, likes the oil and gas industry, not as big a fan of the clean energy transition, and President Biden, the incumbent Democrat president who passed the Inflation Reduction Act, the U.S.'s signature climate and energy subsidy program. Both houses of Congress, the House and the Senate, are likely to be competitive as well. And what that means is nobody wants to do anything particularly controversial. As such, we can expect lawmaking to effectively shut down for the rest of the year, uh, with a few small exceptions of bipartisan interest, like a potential tax deal that would uh, improve business tax expenses for a variety of different companies. Now, what happens when the election takes place is a very different story. There's a pretty stark choice between Biden, who would likely continue his uh, path of engaging with US allies and continuing to subsidize clean electricity build-out, grid build-out, and Trump, who's vowed to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act and double down on oil and gas drilling and exports. So you mentioned that Trump has promised to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a bit surprising given that many of the policies are actually benefiting what we would consider to be red or predominantly voting Republican states. Can you tell us whether or not that's even likely and how possible it is to repeal the IRA? I would say it's possible, but not likely. At the end of the day, as you mentioned, you would need both houses of Congress and the president to all agree to repeal the law. And with so many Republican constituencies benefiting from the Inflation Reduction Act, it's unlikely that you could really repeal it wholesale and get away with it. In fact, many credits in the law, such as credits for clean hydrogen and uh, carbon capture are pretty favorable to the oil and gas industry, which tends to have a lot of institutional links with Republican states and Republican politicians. What you're more likely to see is attempts at targeted repeal, which require a large and united enough party across all three veto points, both houses of Congress and the presidency, to achieve. Now, that said, the president does have a lot of autonomy to write or rewrite regulations within the bounds of the law. So for example, Trump could out of a focus on American industrialization and global competition over emissions reductions, loosen some of the rules around clean hydrogen production, likely resulting in emissions, but creating potentially a more competitive industry in the short term. There's also questions about uh, electric vehicle tax credits. Those have some pretty strict rules written into them, trying to exclude Chinese companies who are the leaders in the electric vehicle battery industry from benefiting. The Biden administration has walked a narrow tightrope to enforce the law while still uh, allowing key technologies to flow into the U.S. 
Trump, however, is more likely to tighten those so that Chinese companies are completely excluded, probably to the detriment of the US EV industry. There's also questions about discretionary or voluntary spending programs like the Department of Energy's Loan Programs Office that has hundreds of billions of dollars in loan guarantee authority that uh, President Trump could simply refuse to give out. And that could slow down the deployment of new technologies that aren't otherwise subsidized in the IRA. The IRA has in many respects put the U.S. kind of central to many companies' strategy when it comes to international climate policy. What is at stake from a international policy standpoint with the outcomes of this U.S. election? So internationally, if you cast your mind back to Trump's previous presidency, he withdrew the U.S. from the Paris Agreement. And so the Republicans have suggested that they would likely try to do the same thing this time around if a Republican president is put in place. If that were to happen... So in the kind of short term, we've got the COP29 coming up at the end of this year. So the new Republican president would not be inaugurated by that time, but would have been elected just a few days before COP29 begins. So if the Biden administration goes to COP and makes any promises, this would severely undermine them. And in the longer term, it would mean that any deal that's reached at COP wouldn't cover the second biggest emitter. So I think currently the US accounts for something like 11% of global emissions. So that would put bigger onus onto the parties that are still within the Paris Agreement and make it harder to limit global warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees above pre-industrial levels. It also has implications in terms of climate finance for developing countries. So we've seen um, the support that's been given to the UN's Green Climate Fund really fluctuate in the last uh, three rounds of replenishment because of the previous US withdrawal. Um, So in the years when the US was still part of Paris, it accounted for around a fifth to a quarter of the finance that was contributed towards this fund. So we could also see implications for these what are known as just energy transition partnerships. So these have been a country driven alliances between a developing country and various so called developed countries, for example, announced for South Africa, and Indonesia. The US has been part of that. So a US withdrawal from the Paris Agreement would suggest that it would be less willing to contribute to these funding mechanisms, which were kind of deemed as to be one of the successes in recent years in terms of making progress towards climate action. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, we could sit here and talk about the United States all day, and I'm sure there are plenty of other shows that are going to do just that. But let's keep on moving through other parts of North America, because there are a number of countries having elections this year, as we stated at the beginning of the show. So let's go next to Canada. What's happening in Canada as they're having an election this year, too? So... Canada is having some provincial level elections that are guaranteed to happen this year in three provinces, which equate to about 19% of its population. British Columbia, an early leader in climate and energy policy, Saskatchewan, and also the Atlantic province of New Brunswick. Uh, In everyone where but New Brunswick, there's not likely to be a changeover. In New Brunswick, you might see uh, a decrease in investment in climate hostile politics, you might say. 
More importantly, however, at the national level, there may be an early election. One is due by next year, but that depends on a lot of political factors. The reason we want to flag this so early, however, is it has major implications for Canada's carbon pricing system. Canada's been an early leader in this space and one of the few advanced democracies to independently pass a strong carbon price. But it's been one of the major political targets, I guess you could say, for the Conservative Party as run by Pierre Polyev, who's likely to win the next election whenever it comes. He's promised to repeal the carbon tax as his first act in office. And so currently, the government of Liberal Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is rushing to finalize contracts for difference, which would essentially guarantee a carbon price for specific companies or projects long after its own government leaves. So only one carbon contract for difference has already been agreed for a carbon capture project, and any new ones will be essential to ensuring the long-term legacy of the carbon price. Otherwise, we're likely to see a similar dynamic to Australia, another early leader in, the car in carbon pricing, which saw a switch over to a more conservative government and the immediate repeal of that price, leading to a sort of limited climate ambition for almost a decade thereafter. So let's talk next about Mexico, which is also having an election and has really been a beneficial recipient of some of the nearshoring that's taken place as a part of the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. Would this upcoming election change any elements of that? And, and what does this election mean for climate in Mexico? So with the way that the uh, Mexican political system works is that the current president, who's known as AMLO, cannot stand again. So we know that will definitely be a change in political leader. There are two main contenders. Now, the, the contender that's kind of been the chosen successor, let's say, is Claudia Sheinbaum. Uh, she currently leads uh, in the polls against the opposition candidate, Galvez. So Sheinbaum could be somewhat positive in terms of uh, the climate transition in Mexico. So AMLO, during his years in, in control, has really efforts to strengthen the powers of the state in the energy sector. And this has led to protracted legal and regulatory uncertainty, which has uh, deterred private investment. And we've really seen that in the renewable space where deployment has slowed down and also the kind of efforts to do nearshoring. So nearshoring is where international companies set up more production in Mexico to, for example, to be closer to the US so they can take advantage of some of the subsidies that are on offer under the IRA. So AMLO's chosen successor, Shane Baum, is somewhat of an environmentalist and does support renewables, but She's also defended AMLO's views on energy. So if she does win, we would express expecting minor policy improvements, but they are unlikely to kind of result in significant changes. Whereas the opposition, Galvez, if she is put in place, then we could see more extensive changes. Next, let's pivot to Asia and let's start in the most populous country in the world, certainly important for global politics and global climate. Let's talk about India. So India. Now, actually, unlike some of the other elections that we're going to be talking about, this one has a more certain outcome. We do expect um, Modi to retain power for the next five years. And therefore, we expect relatively little change in terms of the policies for the energy transition. But if you don't mind, I will switch to one that is less certain, which is Indonesia. So coming up in, in less than a month, there's elections to vote for the new president and legislature. So current president would 
Pedro can't stand again. And his government has had like a significant impact on energy transition policy. So they have pledged to increase clean energy investments and phase out coal. Out of the three candidates, so Basweden is probably the most progressive candidate. He would be likely to see more substantive changes uh, in favour of climate policy. However, the other two candidates are less ambitious in terms of promoting climate action. Of the two, Pranowo seems to be more committed to reducing coal use than Subianto. But the other thing to flag is something I mentioned earlier. So Indonesia has one of these JETPs, these Just Energy Transition energy plans. So that's at a crucial stage at the moment in that the government is actually trying to finalise right now the investment plan. And the plan that they actually released at the end of last year was a step in the right direction. But it is at a crucial stage of kind of devising what they're going to do. So the outcome of the election could have some kind of implications for that as well. That Indonesia election's coming up very soon, too. It's February 14th, so right around the bend. And if anybody wants to dig back through the Switched On archives, we actually had one of the candidates, Anes Bezwedan, here on this show, I believe at the beginning of last year. But pivoting now, and we're rather continuing with our coverage of elections around the world, let's next talk about what's happening in South Korea with an election due in April. Yes, so this is a a legislature election. So currently the People Power Party, the PPP, controls the presidency. And they're hoping to kind of regain ground in the parliament from the main opposition party, the Democratic Party of Korea, which won a landslide victory uh, in the last election in 2020. So the short answer is actually, regardless of the outcome, there's no expectation to see a major shift in climate ambition. We'd expect them to keep their 2030 Uh, emissions target and their broad NDC, their climate plan. We could see some moderate changes, though. So if the President Yoon's uh, PPP, the People Power Party, actually do manage to regain ground in the National Assembly, then we could see fast-tracked support for the pro-nuclear policies, which would be at expense of renewables. However, if the DPK kind of maintains its dominance in the Assembly, then its bills that are seeking to promote renewables and carbon pricing could gain momentum. So the next election likely to take place this year, although we don't yet have a date because that is how it works here in the UK. What is likely to happen in the United Kingdom or rather what's up at stake when it comes to Labour versus Conservatives in the year ahead? So you're you're absolutely right. Uh, The UK is unlike the US. There's no kind of a set date for an election. We know it needs to happen by January 2025. And it seems likely it will happen this year because the parties wouldn't want to do all their campaigning over Christmas, very likely. And more pertinently, the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has indicated that it's likely to be in the second half of the year. But that does mean that we could have increased uncertainty really over most of this year. So currently, the Labour Party um, is ahead of the incumbent Conservatives in the polls. But we do expect this gap to narrow as we get closer to the election, because that does tend to happen. We do think that climate and biodiversity is likely to be a key issue for this election. And if the, the current polls are incorrect, and the incumbent government is re-elected, however, we don't expect to see significant changes in policy support. 
However, on the bright side for the energy transition, if the Labour government or other, if Labour Party is indeed elected and made government, or at least the majority party, we would expect them to boost support for policies to cut emissions and to tackle nature loss. So uh, Labour leader Keir Starmer has pledged to so-called speed ahead with green investment. However, there have been statements made by various members of the Labour Party more recently that suggested some of these plans could be watered down depending on the state of the public finances. However, there are some actions pledged by the Labour Party so far that don't actually rely on considerable spending. Things like revamping the planning system for onshore renewable projects, and that could have um, a credible impact in terms of the energy transition. And I'm just thinking back to what you said earlier in the show about how in election years you can see climate policy or policy really of all kinds slow down and not as much happen within the government. So the downside in some respects of Sunak saying that there will be an election, but it won't be till the second half of the year, is this slowdown effect in the UK in addition. Now, next, thinking about the continent. So the European Union have their own set of elections, and the European Union is very significant because they set the climate policy that would cover all of their member states across that whole area. So what's happening in the EU? So... If you'll give me, if you bear with me, the kind of importance of what's happening this year and recent trends, to understand it kind of requires some understanding of how the EU works. So there are three main EU institutions. So this year, the European Parliament, so it's made up of members of the European Parliament that are directly elected by citizens. They have their scheduled elections in June. So this has been kind of heralded as a make or break vote, not only for the European Union as a whole, which sounds quite dramatic, but also for its net zero plan known as the Green Deal. So current polls suggest that the Parliament's going to see a significant shift to the right. So the kind of centre-right European People's Party, the EPP, is set to remain the largest political group, but may well again, not secure sufficient seats for an outright majority. Now, in the current parliament that's been in place for the last four years, there's been an informal coalition between the centre-right EPP and then the Socialists and Democrats and the Liberal Renew Europe. However, we may see that, in fact, in the next election, if the EPP is the biggest party, it intends to switch to further right parties like the ECR and ID. And these two parties are likely to see significant gains if, if the polls are correct in the elections to the detriment of the Greens and the Liberals. So this is particularly significant because the most laws of the EU have to be passed by both the European Parliament and the Council of the EU. Council of the EU is made up of member state governments or representatives. Now, in the last few years, the European Parliament has tended to be the more ambitious party in terms of promoting climate action compared with the Council. But if we do have this shift to the right in the Parliament, that they may become less supportive of these policies. This is especially significant because we're at the stage of where the EU has agreed the Green Deal and its high-level commitments, but it now needs to pass all these detailed policies and concrete measures to achieve those commitments. And we could see more pushback 
from some European Parliament political groups if this shift to the right actually materialises. The thing to also mention is that, as I said, the council, which is the other co-legislator, that is also seeing its own shift to the right, because as you may well have heard in the news, there has been more support for populist and far-right policies in various member states of the EU, like the Netherlands and Italy. So that could mean that the council is even less supportive than it has been previously in terms of climate action. And the other thing to note is that the third institution is the European Commission, which kind of acts like the administrative arm. It comes up with the proposals which are then approved by the Parliament and the Council. Now, the College of Commissioners, so these are kind of the heads of departments for the Commission, they are also scheduled to change this year. And they also tend to change, as in like they're often not kept on for subsequent terms. And this, the selection of those, they're selected by the Council and the Parliament. Therefore, they will also depend on what's happening at national level. And therefore, the shift to the right at national level could affect who's actually made into the new commissioners. So one thing just to note as well as this could have implications for a domestic or intra-EU policy, but the EU has also been probably one of the biggest advocates and major economies who have pushed for climate action in the international negotiations. So if we do see, say, the US, which has also pushed for bold climate action in these negotiations, we see um, the USA withdraw from the Paris Agreement and the EU become less ambitious, then this has even kind of more further, less optimistic ramifications for global climate deals in the future. One of the things that I've been hearing at events, and when I see people, they talk about how this attention has shifted to the US because the Inflation Reduction Act, and that they're looking to Europe to essentially, at this EU level, pass a different set of laws that will make it a more attractive environment. Do you think that with this potential shift to the right and change in who's actually over there in Brussels, that they'll essentially walk away from that and that will no longer be part of their strategy to attract investment? They won't be going as fervently for those green dollars and those businesses that are part of the transition? I think it's not as clear clear cut as you might imagine, because say the kind of centre right and further right parties, they often do support industry and companies. So they will likely be in favour of attracting as much investment and support to local business as possible. However, whether they want to do it through substantive green support or, say, ambitious climate regulations, that is less likely. So even if we look at the centre-right political group, the EPP in the European Parliament, they have, in the last four years, only voted for 16% of the green policies that came up. So it's quite uncertain, but it's less likely that they would therefore advocate some of the more ambitious policies that are up currently up for debate and being devised by the European Commission to promote these green dollars in terms of kind of industrial support that's focused on the energy transition. So one final country I'd love to hear more about is South Africa. They've been having rolling blackouts and their energy system is well controlled by a state-owned utility, ESCOM. And there have been some changes there in terms of trying to look towards a more secure energy system and their approach has included the incorporation of additional gas. Do we think that this election is essentially one that could go either way? And are there changes that we could essentially be looking for when it comes to their energy policy? Or is it more likely to be election year or not a year of more of the same? 
So, yes, absolutely. This is a crucial election for South Africa because we could actually see that the uh, ruling African National Congress, the ANC, which has been in power since 1994, could see support wane and it could lose its overall majority in the National Assembly. So we've started actually the ANC start to have talks with opposition groups about potential alliances, informal or formal. So as you mentioned, ESCOM, the state-owned utility, it's seen significant financial losses in the last few years, as well as allegation of mismanagement and corruption. And South Africa has had possibly its worst year in terms of blackouts, known as load shedding over the last year. Energy is likely to be at the heart of the elections this year. However, it's not clear that we'll see significant change, even if the ANC does indeed lose its overall majority. So the ANC has had a mixed record, I think it's fair to say, on clean energy policy, as shown by the kind of fluctuations in support for its renewables auction programme. And its ministers have been criticised for blocking this path away from coal. So if the election kind of weakens the ANC and those other parties come in and they do have more ambitious climate and energy policies, then we could see more support for unbundling ESCOM or indeed more support for renewables and other kind of clean energy technologies. Great. Well, thank you for taking us on this trip really around the world on what is a momentous election year. Vicky, Derek, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you very much, Dana. Switched On is produced by Cam Gray with production assistance from Kamala Schelling and Alushi Karunaratne. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute nor should it be construed as investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.